Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Welcome to Ted Zuvine for March 28, 2021. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right. Excited tonight. Our guest is going to be uh, University of Illinois Springfield professor Magic Wade. Uh, she has uh, lived and worked in a lot of states, including... Um, Alaska, Illinois, and Minnesota. So we're going to talk to her about those states. And also, she kind of does some policy work and things like uh, uh, police justice and whatnot, um, so, you know, uh, police reform and, and policing in general. So we're going to discuss those issues with her. Um, but then we're going to have a lot of things to cover. And the first was going to be a news that really made national News, even though it's based out of Georgia, and we talked about some of these things in the past, including the one in Iowa, um, the, the voting uh, laws that have been put in, but a really draconian, uh, most restrictive voting law that, that's been passed thus far uh, was signed into law at the end of last week uh, by, you know, Brian Kemp, governor of Georgia, passed by both chambers of the legislature, um, and received no Democratic support. Um, and it has been widely criticized, including the President of the United States, Biden, uh, weighed in against it, uh, I think, more than once now. Um, Catherine, what are your thoughts on you know, this initial legislation? Well, it's just horrible. It's, first of all, it's a, a solution in search of a problem. Um, there's no evidence of any kind of, um, you know, voter – uh, insecurity in Georgia. They recounted a number of times they had no, they saw no appreciable evidence of any kind of, you know, illegal activity, but they just, I mean, it's really hard to not say, to not believe that they feel like they can't win unless they suppress the vote of people of color and people living in poverty and uh, limiting access to the polls by various uh, strategies. They claim that's not the reason, but it's really hard to look at this and see it happen so brief, so quickly after they lost uh, so much in Georgia. So it's, um, it's very discouraging and, uh, really quite shocking some of the provisions of the of this uh, legislation you know there's a whole lot of stuff but just some of them you know uh, drop boxes are only available during business hours which is ridiculous why even have them Um, and you know they did put Sunday voting back which is I'm grateful for Um, but this whole idea that no one can pass out free water in the lines, it, it's just ridiculous. And I, I think it's really interesting that these are uh, alleged Christian people. <laughs> and I just have a hard time believing that Jesus wouldn't want us to pass water out to people who are waiting and thirsty. But I'm not a I'm not that religious, so I can't really state that claim. But it's yeah, shocking. I'll tell you this. I think that, and really, and not just people of color. I think anybody, white or people of color, that are living in densely populated areas, i.e., Metro Atlanta, kind of get targeted because they're going to be uh, the folks that are probably going to have the heavier poll, uh, turnout polling places. In certain times, and they're going to be 
impacted. Um, and whereas then people of color that live in rural areas might not be as impacted, but then of course we know that demographics are moving away from Republicans and heavily populated, particularly Metro Atlanta, and moving towards them in rural populated areas. And so I think that's another facet of this. Um, Tim, what are some of your thoughts? You know, I think the thing that bothered me worse than anything was the power grab by the legislature. They've set it up now. Whether if there is a close election, they could basically walk into any county and overturn anything the local election board would do and take over the election in that county themselves, including the recount of the votes and all of that. Uh, They've taken uh, a lot of power away from the Secretary of State, who, you know, traditionally has been the top elections official in the state. Now that will will be, I guess, the, the state legislature. They have set it up where they could overturn a close election if it didn't go their way. I find that very, very, very worrisome right there. Uh, I I don't know if that's going to stand up in court, but we'll see because Biden says the Justice Department's going to have a look at this thing. Uh, But, boy, talk about overreacting, goodness. Um, And... um, we're, we're certainly on the map, all right. Uh, not the way uh, we wanted to be, but but here we are. Uh, got a lot of folks already talking about how they're going to purposely go get arrested, handed out water. We've got an attorney in the cab. I, I believe, no, it's Gwinnett County. Said if you get arrested here for that, you contact me and I'll defend you. <laughs> So uh, we're choosing upside. Yeah, and I I definitely think the optics of that would be very interesting um, and and favorable, you know, to to Democrats getting arrested for handing out water, for handing out, you know, some kind of small snack for voter lines that are how many hours long. But here's what I'm wondering, and Tim, I think you're on to something. The part where they can throw out um, results, that's going to be very, very dangerous and scary. Could they use the water provision to throw out the results of a precinct, of a whole county, whatever it may be? You know, oh, DeKalb County didn't police this, and water was handed out, and they were violating the law left and right. Maybe no one gets arrested, and they just chunk the entire county out. How does a Democrat win um, a statewide election if you threw, say, a DeKalb County out, if you threw in the future a you know, a Gwinnett County, if you throw a Clayton County, even a Douglas isn't, County, that's where I that, kind of think that they could use that that, that provision to, it, to justify throwing out because Paul violated the law by giving out water. Isn't, isn't that the whole simple point of everything that they've done so that they can win? The law yeah, was, exactly. was sitting there that they changed. They passed that in 2005 with the thought that it would make it easier for them to win. Uh, And now they're doing the exact opposite, gutting that law and changing it again to a more favorable law for them to win. That's the only thing, that's the only reason they're doing any of this at all, right? Yeah, I mean, and Brian Kemp is protecting when he is on the ballot. And here's something interesting I heard. You know, a lot of these provisions, they're going to affect some white rural Republican voters. Um, And they think that some of these provisions are going to affect more the Trumpian, you know, low-educated, low-information voter more than they'll affect you know, more of the um, traditional Republicans have been turning out time after time after time. So it may be that Brian Kemp well, likes these provisions two ways. It may help him in the primary to sneak out a victory and then help him in the general against Democratic voters. It's going to disenfranchise different blocks, but his voters, he thinks, will be less likely in both elections. I heard that speculated the, this week. The average weight 
at a voting precinct in Georgia last year that was majority white was nine minutes. The average wait at a, at a precinct last year that was majority black was 51 minutes. That's nearly six times as long. That water thing was a shot straight at black voters. Yeah. There's no it's other way. Right. There is no other way to interpret that one. Oh, definitely, and that's not the ones I'm talking about. I'm talking about some of the, the you know, the, the cumbersome, you have to have this ID to vote this way and that way and what have you. But I tell you this, the water thing was such a bad PR uh, move. Um, you know, it's going to be the thing that gets pointed out and pointed out and pointed out and causes – any popularity any part of this bill might somehow have to erode. And, and Tim, there was a poll that VoterSmart, that, that Fair, uh, Fair Fight Commission, VoterSmart did the actual polling, and the questions that they released, not a single portion of this law had um, net favorability, um, and there was about six different facets. What were the numbers on the water and food provision? They were the most stark. Uh, Seventy-seven percent opposed it. Nineteen percent supported it. All groups were underwater on that one. No, no group uh, had a majority support. No group, not not Republicans, not anybody. Nobody supported that one. Yeah, I mean, I guess the nineteen percent are voters that lack common sense or empathy. Um, and that's or the thing. Is, or they never had a long line. So they That's didn't understand right. the need for it. That's yeah, right. I, I voted early in, in Floyd County downtown at the, the uh, elections, and there was somebody that was a worker that walked through the line and, and offered some bottles of water. Um, and that was somebody that was with the elections office wanting to do that. And because the wait was, I think, over an hour that day, um, and they walked around. It wasn't a partisan thing at all. It was just, man, y'all are having to wait a long time to vote. Uh, and so we're just trying it's, to take care of you. It was a basic kindness thing. Um, Catherine, exactly. I think before, before you had mentioned, you had mentioned about water. And I know there's a lot of churches that will print up water bottles with their logo and a Bible verse or something to do, you know, with witnessing and hand out water. And that is a very, very common ministry. I, I wonder um, – if churches do this and they hand out water at a polling places, whether it be a white evangelical church like uh, Dr. Uh, DeMay explained to us last week or an African-American church that might be, um, say, Senator Raphael Warnock, either way, how is that going to look if they confiscate the church's water with a Bible verse because uh, they can't hand it out? Won't that be a horrible, horrible look for Brian Kemp and the Republicans? Yes. It's it's ludicrous. It's ridiculous. But I want to talk it's, about, for a minute, just for a minute, about this ID thing. So for years, this has bothered me. Um, ever since we started with the photo ID and the IDs for voting. So to me, uh, it it signifies a lack of trust in the registration process and therefore in the Secretary of State's office. Because to me, when you register to vote, you prove your identification, you know, you give your, you swear that you're who you are and you give them your ID. And you, so this idea that you have to continue to do that every time you use this right seems just ridiculous. Like, and everybody talks about how, well, you have to have an ID to get on a plane well, getting on a plane is not a right, um, or to rent a car, well, that's not a right either. So I just, I, I just find it very puzzling that this seems to be a lack of confidence in our Republican secretaries of state, because they've been Republicans for a while. Yeah, and really it's just – and they, they thought that this would you know, help them do this, that, and the other, and they've passed these in so many states. And it really – while it may help them, it has not been sufficient to keep them from losing elections in states like Georgia and Arizona and other places. And at the end of the day, they need to you – know, they love the free market. They need to look at the free market and say, 
people don't like the product, we need to tweak the product, change the product, and so therefore pe- people will like the product, um, you know, when it's presented fairly against the other one. And so now I think part of this bill is you have to have a photo ID to uh, vote absentee, which that does seem kind of weird. I mean, obviously, I guess you'd have to send in a photocopy. How, did either one of y'all know how that's going to work with the photo ID with the absentee ballot? I think you have to send in a copy. Yeah, photo. That's what I figured it had to be a photocopy. Tim, do you know more? Which is which is a, a that, barrier for a lot of people. I that, don't have a that, photocopy. That, I mean, well, I that's can, the point, Catherine. That's the right. point. Make it harder for people to vote, uh, and 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 they're targeting our people. That that's that's it. That that's the whole point of all of it. Make it harder and for our people to vote, so that enough of them gives up and they win. Yeah, I saw. Um, I don't know if you ever watched Georgia Gang, but that Janelle, who's on there, she's the Republican. I saw her one day talking about – when they, it wasn't today, but it was a, couple, a few weeks ago. We, they were talking about this legislation, and she said, well, everybody has a cell phone. Everybody has a computer at home. I'm like, what world do you live in? Not everybody has a cell phone that has a camera on it, and not everybody, not even close to everybody, has a computer at home. And if nothing else has shown us that, it's been this pandemic where we have children – who are stuck at home and can't access the schools because they don't have a computer. So this idea that everyone has access to this technology is really false. Well, and and everybody has a cell phone, but if you have to send in a printed copy of your driver's license, you know, a a photocopy, my my phone doesn't print. It's a pretty good little phone, but I I guess I don't, I guess I need to buy the the iPhone printer app where it shoots out a piece of paper because I haven't, or maybe that it's on Android. I don't know. Um, Seems like Janelle doesn't quite understand how um, printers work, Um, but that's just, you know, I mean, maybe there's a way you can submit it through some other means, and that seems like the people at the elections offices would just you know, pull their hair out if they have to get one thing by email and then they have to cross-check it by something that was mailed in physically. And that sounds like you're just wanting those poor uh, people to um, have have a much harder time um, with just doing, you know, what should not be that complicated of a job. Um, Well, Brad Rathesberger, you know, we know he's pretty much – everybody, Republicans and Democrats are saying that he won't survive a primary. Um, this could be a situation where he could have come out against this bill. He didn't do it. This, I don't think, is going to be enough to save him. I don't think back in this bill is going to, you know, they're not going to forgive all the sins of, of you know, not supporting Donald Trump and throwing out the 2020 election results. Um, why did he not come out stronger, do you think, Tim? You know, I've wondered about that, and and he did, he just didn't. They and, and they're just, you know, directly attacking him too. He might as well say what's on his mind because it's not going to make any difference at this point. Um, I, I actually wonder what what he's going to politically do next. Is he just going to go away, or is he just going to stand down and say nothing? Is he going to announce that he's not running? What is he going to do? So far, yeah. we really, really don't know, but I think they've cut him off at the kneecaps. Yeah, I, I think his best move might have been to um, – and I, I don't think this would have worked necessarily, but we, like we were talking about in a text chain this week, there's been no one to step up on the Democratic side. If he would have forcefully come out, oh, this is terrible. My party's just lost their way completely. I can't support them. I think he could have tried to maybe switch parties and, and been the Democratic oh, nominee. Yeah. Like I said, I don't know that it would have worked, but he ain't going to be the Republican nominee. So at least it would have been a more interesting play, and it would have given more teeth uh, to opposition to this bill, not that it needed much more. Um, well, I want to welcome on our guest uh, to the Kudzu Vine from University of Illinois Springfield. Welcome to the Kudzu Vine, Dr. Magic Wade. Uh, 
Hi, I've got a call on the line. Is this not Dr. Wade? Okay, I jumped the gun. I had one of those, uh, y'all seen them when y'all have run the board, all ones calls, and I just assumed it might have been Dr. Wade, so I took a chance. But I'll I'll uh, uh, do that again later, or hopefully we'll get another call in. Um, well, one thing we did need to talk about, uh, well, here it is. I, I just, like I said, I jumped the gun two seconds. Um, from the University of Illinois Springfield, welcome to the Kudzu Vine, Dr. Magic Wade. Hello, hi. Yes, well, glad, good to have you on. Well, Dr. Wade, I know about you because I've been fortunate enough to take, I guess, three classes with you now at University of Illinois Springfield, but the rest of the people in the listening audience don't know as much about you. So give just kind of a little short uh, bio, political bio, what have you. Sure. Um, well, thank you so much for having me. I have been a professor at UIS in Springfield since 2015. And before that, I studied uh, political science at the University of Minnesota, and I lived there for a few years. But I'm actually from the West Coast, and so previously I grew up in Alaska. And then after I graduated high school, I went to undergrad in Washington State. And so I've, I've bounced around quite a bit, and I would say that my interest in political science have been shaped by some of not only the national experiences and the, the political culture when I was coming of age, but also just living in so many different states, I've really become interested in state politics and in public policy. And so uh, a lot of the classes that I teach and the research that I do involve comparing different U.S. state government policies to each other, different solutions to, you know, pressing problems, and the way that the, the politics and the political culture and the, the partisan polarization of the states really shapes those outcomes because, yeah, we've got 50 states, and they, they're all experimenting, we, we hope, with different things that they're trying to accomplish. And I think we have a lot to learn from that, and I find that a lot more interesting than the day-to-day the -day kind of national politics that gets a lot of coverage in the headlines. So that's a little bit about me. <laughs> Oh, certainly. And and we'll talk about those states that you've been fortunate enough to, to live in, uh, a few of those, and then also um, some of your policy background. I know that, you know, you've taken a before what happened this year, unfortunately, with Ahmaud Aubrey and uh, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, and unfortunately, even more others. Um, you've yeah. been interested in policing. Um I was, I guess it was last week I listened to an excerpt of the new book coming out uh, called Lucky, and it's about the uh, 2020 election, and it has a lot of um, content where Jim Clyburn, the, the congressman from South Carolina, yeah. uh, you know, shared what was going on, and he had a conversation um, just probably weeks before the passing of, of Congressman John Lewis, and they were talking yeah. about um, de defund the police and the slogan. And, and Congressman Lewis, according oh. to Congressman uh, Coburn, said, you know, that's just a terrible slogan. It's a terrible yeah. way to frame it. And he, you know, burn, be burn back in the 60s was terrible for us. Um, we know that you know, yeah. the police reform means a lot of things. Um, and sure. people say, oh, defund the police. Kind of tell us what yeah. kind of the range of, of sure. that is. Um, Sure. Well, and just to speak to Clyburn and Lewis's conversation, one thing that I think the Democratic Party had, had really has to continue to reckon with is the generational divide. And it's not just the kind of progressive, liberal or moderate wing divide, but that generational divide among some, you know, say like civil rights icons and the ways that they approached police reform and criminal justice reform, and in some instances wanted more policing in response to the first the heroin epidemic and then the crack, crack epidemic and just like really high homicide rates in a lot of major cities where they wanted more policing, but they wanted more urban investment. They wanted money to come into cities and they wanted to see, you know, urban uh, revitalization. They wanted to see more money for schools, all of these things. And so you know, they, they didn't need to say defund the police back, you know, during those times because they wanted actually just more resources generally. And today I think, you know, the younger generation of activists who may not even identify as Democrats, which is kind of another thing to contend with. So some of the people who are calling for defund the police, they don't align with the parties as neatly as 
um, some people in the Democratic establishment might want them to, and they might vote Democrat when it comes to it, but they might not. So I think, you know, in the contemporary version of, of defunding the police, you know, every, well, not everyone, many people will say we're talking about, you know, taking parts of the budgets and investing in um, really a different model of responding to the things that police have been asked to address that maybe some people don't think are, are even supposed to be in their job description in the first place, like, you know, disputes between individuals that get heated where, you know, you don't necessarily need law enforcement coming in with guns or mental health crises where maybe it would be better to have somebody with a social work degree or, you know, a counselor come to the scene and not be the only, you know, have the only people be there be police. So I think the thing that when they say, you know, people said defund the police, I mean, they really do mean they want to take big chunks out of police budgets and put it somewhere else. And I think the question becomes, and I really wonder, is the civilians that say, become on the payroll to, to address some of these issues that the police used to be the primary, you know, first responders addressing who, who, like what, what role do they now occupy when they start performing police functions? So if you're a social worker who works for the police department and you don't have a gun, but you go when there's an incident and you get called, at what point are you also kind of part of the, the criminal justice system or the public safety system? Because your, your paycheck's getting paid for by the government and by the police, what used to be the police budget. So I'm, I'm really uh, curious about how these, these reforms will, you know, also be part of the, the typical standard criminal justice system as it is. Um, but, yeah, there's definitely a range of things that have been called for, and it's kind of the diversion of funds. But I think um, – and, and often, I mean, not hiring as many police officers. So, I mean, in a lot of uh, places where they've called for moving the money to other services, they're also not filling vacant police officer positions, and they're not going to have, like, a new incoming cadet of, you know, class of cadets get trained in order to be able to, I mean, when you take away money for police, you're taking away money for salaries. That's where the money goes. So that's going to mean potentially fewer certain types of police on the beat and other types of people who are civilians doing the work that the police formerly did. Yes, I know we're a county closer to where I live and work, and coach, they got rid of middle school sports. And at the time, we were kind of like, well, you didn't really save the money because now instead of the money being spent on middle school sports, you're probably going to spend more money in your county on juvenile justice because a lot of those kids are no longer occupied uh, in the afternoon. Yeah. And so that's one of those cases where uh, – and then you'd have a lot of people across the political aisle, I think, saying, hey, youth sports is a better place to spend in the juvenile justice. Um, yeah. well, let's kind of get back into the state like we had talked about, and uh, we each kind of are going to take a state and talk with you, and I'm going to um, take Minnesota. And my understanding sure. of Minnesota long ago was that Minneapolis was more Democratic uh, St. Paul was mm -hmm. a little more Republican. South St. Paul was very Republican, and then the Iron Range up north was very Democratic and very labor-oriented. In the past yeah, yeah. four to five years, that's not the case anymore, is it? Can you just kind of mm -hmm. tell us uh, yeah. what's the lay of the land in Minnesota sure. now? You know what I find really interesting about that is so the, the Democratic, it's a farmer labor party that had uh, this unified uh, stronghold in Minnesota for many, many years. And they were able to, just like you said, galvanize the farmers and the, the labor people that worked in um, mining and in manufacturing and in, in those trades and, and on then later on the public employee unions and, and have a really, you know, strong democratic presence for many years. And what Minnesota was able to do for a while was hold off the conversion that a lot of the Midwest states underwent in about like the 2010s where they started becoming a lot more Republican and where, you know, you ended up with uh, Republicans taking over state legislatures and, you know, in Wisconsin and Ohio and then back and forth in Pennsylvania and in Michigan. And so these big, big parts of the Midwest that really were labor strongholds and, and had, you know, uh, like, 
predictably democratic governments. Um, Minnesota held on to that for a long time, but you are right that these previous strongholds in rural areas of Minnesota that used to vote Democrat have gone a lot more uh, red recently. And so you do really have, and now St. Paul is um, more progressive than it used to be. And, you know, it's it's had a lot more uh, population growth in both St. Paul and Minneapolis from people, you know, moving into the cities that want a certain lifestyle. And I really think that the conservative forces in Minnesota, um, with the way that districts are drawn and things like that, they're able to have a lot of influence in the state legislature. And I think, you know, they might go back and forth about whether they'll elect Republicans to be the governor at all, you know, or whether they'll keep acting, uh, electing Democrats. And you might have a similar thing like we're seeing play out of Wisconsin, where, you know, overall, there's a little bit of a Democratic tilt, but there's just, you know, still... Uh, the way the population is spread out, that urban-rural divide is now, just like in other states in the Midwest, it's very, you know, it's a very red-blue divide based on the urban-rural areas. And I think you see that in practically every state. You know, that's that's what characterizes the situation. And then the suburbs are, you know, what's so important. But in Minnesota, there's not a lot of suburbs. <laughs> it's pretty rural outside the main cities. Yes, well, I reserve the right to ask another question, but I'm going to pass it to one of my co-hosts, Catherine Smith. Catherine? Hey, thank you so much for being on with us. I actually would like to go back to talking a little bit about the policing policies that that David, you and David were discussing. Because one of the things that I've, um, I mean, I'm, I'm old, so I've been around for a while, and I've seen some of the changes in um the way police behave um, over the course. I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which was a very liberal town, and had, we had a lot of consternation in the 60s and 70s, and we actually had pretty good police. We had we had a few problem makers, but most of them were pretty good. Um, but one of the things that I think has created um, tension is this increase in the use of militaristic, equipment Mm. and this sort of change from being um i I guess my favorite example is i live in an apartment complex and we have these security guys and they used to have jackets that said enforcement on them and Mm. i called the management and i said what are they enforcing aren't they security (laughs) like doesn't it like starts off it, it like uh Start, and then, now they wear jackets to say security. I'm not taking any credit for that, but yeah, um, sure. But I think there's oh, this change, this difference in, you know, it's this tension between people and police, and for good reason. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's been obviously a lot mm-hmm. of um, uh, problems with some with mm-hmm. certain police departments, but I think this um, ramping up of you know, like in in, in Georgia, we have tanks. In Atlanta, like why do you yeah. tanks? And I mm-hmm. just, I just wonder if you've thought about that or studied that at all to see if that does have an impact, sort of, on how we all behave in response. Sure. Yeah. Oh well. Well, and you know, the point about what that does with the relationships between the community. I think the the advent of, and you know, this isn't. The, the language that I necessarily would use, but people call this warrior policing. And, I mean, it does in certain police departments. You know, it, there's a lot of variation, right, depending on where you're at and what the culture is like. But in the the emergence of this kind of militarized form, use of force or mentality, and, and many people that are in the police are former military, um, but also just this idea that you have to have these warriors that come out and, you know, they view their role in preserving public safety as not being maybe a part of the community, but rather being, uh, you know, people who are coming from outside the community. They don't often live there. They don't often, you know, walk the beat. They're all driving around in, you know, armored vehicles or they're, you know, constantly in their cars. They never get out. And I think people really compare that to an idealized thing that we don't all agree on what the definition of that is, this idea of community policing, which is really supposed to be like 
people that are in the community that are walking the beat that know everybody, you know, that participate in kind of collaborative public safety with local nonprofit organizations where they try to not only, you know, uh, fight off crime or criminal activity, but prevent those types of things from happening and actually keeping people safe by preventing, uh, you know, by creating conditions where the community trusts the police. And I think um, what, so I can't really speak to, you know, necessarily is this change in policing is the thing that, I mean, is cause, I, I think it's, I, I don't think it would be inaccurate to say this is what causes so much community distrust. I think that that's totally fair. And I think that, you know, there's lots of people and ways to research that. But the thing that I have paid attention to and have talked about in, in some of my research, but also in my teaching is the effect that this has on public safety when you have communities that desperately want law enforcement to do things like address spikes in violent crime or solve homicides or, you know, actually create a situation where people feel comfortable calling the police. You know, like in incidences of domestic violence, you know, women might not want to call the police if they think that their partner is going to get killed if they do it. Um, or in right. incidents yeah. where there's, yeah, you know, and when there's, and this, so people talk about, you know, the Ferguson effect. And I think they talk about it kind of, they don't conceptualize it in terms of what is really happening. So people talk about like, well, you know, the police are afraid that they're going to get held accountable for using excessive force. That they, so they stop going into certain communities that might actually really need law enforcement. And, you know, people call that the Ferguson effect and it's disputed whether that's, really the cause of, you know, increases in crime or, or violence because the police aren't around. But what I think there's a lot of evidence to show is that actually when the community does not trust the police, they will not help them solve crime. They will not report crimes. They won't report shootings. They won't report, you know, report abuse or things like that. And then those people that are the small number of people that are from a community that actually do participate in those, those things – they aren't held accountable because there's nobody that the public trusts to hold them accountable. And so when you trace it back to this advent of militarized policing, you know, excessive force being used and the public just feeling basically unsafe in around or with the engagement of people that are supposed to protect, protect them, then I think things break down on so many levels. You just have, you know, nobody wants to work together and, um, you know, you hear about it from really, uh, gosh, from really all sides. We have a pretty broken situation, and these reforms that try to get more actors involved in kind of the activities of law enforcement and public safety, you know, when, you know, we are going to have things that people are, that are illegal and that laws that need to be enforced, I think that that's a goal to try to really break away that model, have more people at the table making a contribution to the effort. So it isn't just the people with guns or with tanks, like you said, that are always the first people on the scene. And then, and maybe then the people with the guns are going to be around. I mean, you know, people still want law enforcement, but they don't want only that showing of force to be the the public face of it. And I think that's what we're hearing a demand for now is additional things, but still, you know, people want that as well. That's how I think of it. And that's why I didn't. I, I haven't liked the defend the police language either. Okay, now yeah. I want to ask you about the state of Illinois. Sure. Thank you very much for um, elaborating sure. on that. Um, sure. So um, I don't. I'm not that familiar with. I've never lived in Illinois. I've spent a lot of time there. But um, what is the um, what, what is the situation? I, I, I like you. I'm really interested in state politics. I think we all. Uh, often ignore how important state and local politics are in our daily lives, and it's mm-hmm. my something I talk to people about a lot and try to make sure they mm-hmm. remember that they have state reps and state senators and mayors that mm, yeah. are important. Um, and so how is your state legislature sure. doing on uh, helping to solve some of these problems? Are they? Absolutely. Um, I haven't. Yeah. I, so how, how how does Illinois fare in your sure. evaluation? Sure. 
So Illinois is really two places. So there's Chicago and there's like everywhere else. Um, and so I live in Champaign-Urbana, although I teach at UIS. And I do follow state politics pretty closely. And at the state level in Illinois, there have been so many reforms that have recently been signed into law by the, the governor, J.B. Pritzker, who's a Democrat. And so the state legislature in Illinois has had a Democratic supermajority for decades. And that's because the urban areas really vote Democrat. Now, the, the southern part of the state tends to, to trend Republican, but just in terms of population, Chicago and the north part of the state really dominates the state legislature. And so recently, the uh, Illinois Black Caucus has come into a lot of power in the state legislature because even though it's a supermajority, so, I mean, you know, Democrats can pretty much do what they want. Previously, the Speaker of the Illinois House was Michael Madigan, who was the longest-serving Speaker of any state house. He was in there for, like, 40 years, and he retired. And when he retired, somebody from the Congressional Black Caucus, Chris Welch, he was able to become the Speaker. And so now he is fielding through all these criminal justice and policing reforms and equity reforms and business reforms that the Black Caucus has uh, been promoting and they have a Democrat governor to sign these bills. So previously, their votes were influential, but they didn't, because if they're not in leadership, I mean, that's the thing. When you're in the state legislature, you need to be in charge of the committees that decide which legislation to prioritize. You have, even right. when you're in the majority, you have limited capital. You have limited money, because our state's had a budget crisis, you know, year and year, year after year. Um, we've had a lot of budget problems in Illinois, and we continue to. But the Black Caucus prioritized a couple of things that they've just passed, and um, they've passed a really big criminal justice reform package. Things that are involved in that are some kind of routine things like, you know, making more people wear, more police wear body cameras, stuff like that. But some things that are more novel are eliminating cash bail. So in Illinois, mm-hmm. it's the first state in the country to actually eliminate cash bail. And so a judge can still hold somebody if they, you know, have committed an offense that they don't think they should be released. But for, you know, the vast majority of offenses, um, if they don't rise to that level of community danger, there's no longer cash bail. So their people are being released until their trial. And that's, you know, some cities have done this. And this at the state level is a huge thing that the progressive reformers really wanted to see happen. Um, other things that they've done to address uh, kind of criminal justice reentry issues has been to basically – I don't want to call it ban the box, but ban the practice of employers being able to use criminal history for, uh, you know, disqualifying somebody for a job unless the job is directly related to their prior offense. And so this is a pretty sweeping legislation that, you know, really is going to make it so, you know, when employers do inquire about people's criminal history, they, they aren't able to use it because they can still inquire. You know, it isn't like you can't ever ask. You know, once you've decided to hire somebody, you can usually ask them what's going on in their past. But for things like employment and housing, they're really trying to remove these barriers to reentry for people who've already kind of served their, their debt to society. Um, and then another couple things that they've done um, in, in terms of kind of economic equity is address so the state of Illinois marijuana, uh, legalized mar- recreational marijuana a couple years ago, and it was an uh, enormous boon to the economy during COVID. So, you know, our, our tax profits <laughs> off of marijuana sales have been enormous. But one thing that didn't happen when we, we legalized marijuana and they expunged people's records. So, you know, a lot of people um, had their prior marijuana arrests totally removed. People that were serving, the, you know, any kind of sentences for marijuana, they were released from prison. But one thing they were had initially said that they would do, and they didn't do it right away, was make sure that the licenses for the new marijuana uh, dispensaries went out in kind of an equitable fashion and so that you would target communities <laughs> that have been affected by the war on drugs and make sure that they could get a chance and, uh, uh, you know, an ability to get licenses. Because one thing that re- often happens when marijuana gets legalized in states is that you have a couple companies that come in and just take over the whole distribution. And so in Illinois, initially, 
they gave the marijuana dispensary licenses for recreational to the people that had the medical licenses. They got first dibs because it was just easy for them to kind of roll their production into recreational. But that basically left out a lot of minority-owned businesses or black-owned businesses, let's say, because they didn't have those medical marijuana licenses. So the recent reform that came about actually, I think it, I don't know if it reserves a certain number of licenses, like sets them aside, or if it provides additional uh, financing to enable more of these kind of black-owned and minority-owned businesses to come in and, you know, start their own recreational marijuana dispensaries. And this was something that the Black Caucus wanted, and they, they pushed really hard for it, and the governor was happy to sign it. And so they're hoping that things like that, you know, create economic opportunities alongside stuff like, um, you know, asking governments or requiring them to make an effort to have uh, partnerships with, you know, minority and Black-owned you know, businesses as well. So things like that. So in terms of contracting and those types of services. So these are new. These all just passed. So here's what I'll say, and this is something I've been really wondering about, is there aren't very many state legislatures to date that have not only, I mean, there's plenty that have Democrats in the majority, but that also have such a large um, black caucus uh, that, that's recently empowered to enact some of these reforms. And as that's happening, you know, they're pushing the things that people have been asking for. You know, there's, there's limits to what they can do. But as they do that, you know, we should be able to really evaluate in a couple years some of the, the impacts of these, cha these changes in terms of equity and social justice outcomes and reducing the prison population and the jail population. I mean, the jail population is going to be, you know, nothing if nobody has to pay cash bail. Um, and so that's pretty fascinating to me. But Chicago is kind of its own beast, and they have their own problems. So, you know, Chicago's really contending with pretty poor relations between the governor and the police and the community. And, you know, Chicago is dealing with really, you know, increasing rates of homicides, just increasing rates of like, kind of like violent crime, property theft, carjackings. And then you have the community who's really still very distrustful of the police because of high profile incidents of police violence that, you know, was not addressed when it should have been. And the governor or and the mayor is really um, trying to kind of, I don't know, have some kinds of reforms that she'll support, but she, uh, Mayor Lightfoot uh, in Chicago, is really, she's got a lot to try to deal with, I would say. And so, you know, even with all these reforms at the state level, I see the politics of Chicago being really complicated and, you know, people are pre pressing for, like, one just specific example I can give from Chicago is a civilian review board for police use of force and for, um, you know, the police uh, operations. And that's something a lot of communities have been considering. I wouldn't be surprised if Ann Arbor is considering something like that because I think in college, they probably already have it. Pushes, they probably already <laughs> have it. And, and I, in Urbana, they have, they have um, uh, a model similar to that, this kind of civilian review board thing. And this exists all over, but they do, they get to review different things, right? Well, Mayor Lightfoot in Chicago really doesn't want that. <laughs> and, you know, there are a lot of reformers that really want it, and she's trying to walk this line where she's like, well, I'm the one that is the one who holds the police accountable. She's like, I'm the mayor. You know, that's what I do. But then, you know, a lot of reformers are like, no, we need other people who can get to the table there. And so even with the reforms that are happening, you know, there are going to be a lot of actors who are uh, activists who want to see, you know, criminal justice reform, police reform, police accountability, who aren't happy even in a state that's run by Democrats, even in a state that has black leadership, because, you know, they want, they want serious, serious change, extensive change. And, you know, I mean, governments are slow. <laughs> Policy makes exactly. slow. Exactly. That's what I was just thinking. You know, even that, with sweeping you know, reform, change is slow. Uh, it's slow, well, and it's thank not you very much. factory. I, You're welcome. I really need to pass this to Tim oh. <laughs> for his questions okay. about Alaska, sure. I think. Go ahead, Tim. Oh, sure. Yeah, good evening, Dr. Wade. As Catherine mentioned, I want to talk to you a little bit about the state that you grew up in. We don't get to talk sure. about Alaska on here much. Um, one name that really has emerged nationally recently is that of Lisa Murkowski, of course. Yeah. Uh, 
as not only an outright opponent of Donald Trump in the Republican Party, but she's also a crucial swing vote on on a myriad of issues, refusing to toe her party's line. Is she in any political trouble now in her home state as a result of her opposition to Trump? That is such a great question. So because I don't talk to a lot of, La- of people that live in Alaska anymore, so I couldn't give you, like, what the people in the coffee shop think because I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not talking to them all the time. And most of my, my brothers are up there, um, but my parents are, are not in Alaska anymore. But I will say this. Um, Lisa Murkowski, I think, actually exemplifies what Republicans in Alaska are like in a much more – and just a lot more than kind of like your typical Trump Republican from a southern state, for instance. Um, I do not – Alaska has been a red state that sometimes elected Democratic governors, but it's, it's been a red state for my whole life, you know, and for a very long time. But a red state that doesn't have the religious right influence that the Republican Party has been really aligned with. So even though – you know, Donald Trump is sort of a weird figurehead for the religious right. The religious right loved Trump, right? They loved, you know, what he did with the Supreme Court. They liked his mm-hmm. defense of religious liberty and freedom and things like that. And, you know, any time that was pushed back against, that was really problematic for them. But Alaskan Republicans, they don't care about that. You know, it's, a, it's the libertarian style, you know, we are not viewed as part of the lower 48 and the politics that goes on down there. So as much as um, Alaskans are conservative, I think that they pride themselves in in really being like independent and actually in some ways apolitical, like they care about the politics of their state that has an economy that is so heavily dependent on oil prices and oil revenue that, you know, decisions made in Washington, D.C., don't often affect them in the way that, you know, some of the decisions that like kind of the global oil market affect them. And so I don't necessarily think that Lisa Murkowski will, um, you know, face a primary challenger, let's say, who could actually beat her. She has so much name Mm -hmm. recognition. And I know that other Republicans in Alaska have been saying that they would still support her. So um, the other senator from Alaska, Dan Sullivan, just came out and said, I will support Lisa Murkowski if she runs again. And so I Mm -hmm. think if you have high-level figures like that who, you know, say we're not going to go against her, that she'll continue to be – I think she'll continue to be relevant. And, you know, we saw what happened Mm -hmm. with Liz Cheney, where in Wyoming they're going to try to primary her, but – um, you know, still in terms of, of her support in, in Congress, I think still she has a lot of allies. I think somebody like Lisa Murkowski has allies in the Congress. And I think that they know that because she's also pretty senior, you know, you don't want to get rid of people like that for a Senate seat. I mean, it's one thing to let, like, in the House, you know, those people come and go. You know, they serve their couple of years and they get a five minutes of fame. And then somebody else comes and runs against them and beats them. And I think that the, the House GOP has a lot more kind of extreme members and a lot more people who kind of go with the partisan wins. Whereas in the Senate, you know, the, the, the party seems to realize that it, it is of their advantage to have people who are a little more establishment and also just, I mean, have been around enough to have a lot of political allies and loyalty. So I don't know. Maybe that's overly optimistic. I mean, we'll see. Um, But I think that Alaskan voters are not, they're not fallen into, you know, the partisan politics. And one thing just what's really interesting is Alaska also was one of the fastest states in terms of rolling out their vaccines um, and Mm -hmm. being able, although I think uptake is going to be low. Like, I don't think that they're going to get more than maybe half the population to do it. They still got the vaccines out pretty quickly. And we're able Mm. to, you know, coordinate that even though in Alaska, you know, people don't wear masks everywhere. And they even had a, a whole little kerfuffle because people weren't wearing their masks in the, the assembly up there. I don't think it was required. And then a bunch of people got COVID and they're like, oh, we should probably start requiring masks. So it's a funny uh, state. You know, they're kind of libertarian, but at yeah. the same time, they still want to get vaccinated. <laughs> they, they, yeah, well, you know, I, they're not I, like turning them down. Yeah, I did want to ask you one question, but 
uh, if they're like my state in one respect, the state oh, of Georgia, sure. the 28 counties that make up the metro area of Atlanta are like 60% of the state's population, so they dominate the yeah. state politically. Now, in Alaska, you have Anchorage, which is like 40% yeah. of the state's population. Does Anchorage Absolutely. dominate Alaska politically in the same way? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Well, so actually, you know, it's interesting. So, yeah, the only cities that you have in Alaska are Anchorage and Fairbanks, and they're tiny. They're like little – Alaska is such a small state. Um, and so, you know, the, the politics of the, you know, the legislature, it's not urban elites from Anchorage who dominate the legislature in the way that maybe urban elites from, like, I shouldn't say from Chicago dominate Illinois, but some people perceive it that way because it's really a mm-hmm. lot of actors, but it's really the business mm-hmm. interest. It's, so it's not Anchorage. It's like the people who, um, you know, get donations from the oil companies. Um, you know, it's going to be ExxonMobil. It's going to be the people who are really, you know, in, in line with, with BP and with the contractors. And so, um, you know, although the assembly is, of course, dominated by people who are, are living in Anchorage or in the boroughs around there, it's not a population center where everybody, like, lives in a city. They live, I mean, people live on the outskirts, they live wherever, but it's business owners. You know, it's going to be a lot of people mm-hmm. who have those interests who are making the decisions about where the budget goes, you know, and where to continue to invest. And so the things that they advocate for are really looking at Alaska as this economic engine that needs to be fueled in a certain way through, you know, specific kinds of deregulation and then, um, and not looking at like Anchorage isn't the economic engine of Alaska. Like Chicago is the economic engine of Illinois, right? All the money is coming mm-hmm. from Chicago um, and maybe the university. So I got to throw a nod to the University of Illinois. You know, they generate a lot of, of uh, revenue as well for the state. But in Alaska, it's not, it's the North Slope. It's Prudhoe Bay. It's, it's the oil companies that are producing, you know, when oil actually is valuable, so much money mm-hmm. for the state. So I think that that diminishes the influence of, say, policies that might be just aimed at, you know, Anchorage as some financial capital, because really it is these companies, and a lot of them, their headquarters are not in Alaska. It's just where their yeah. production uh, capacity is from. So, so I wanted to ask you about one more group, and then I'll throw it back to David sure. to close the segment out. Sure. Alaska happens to have the highest percentage of Native Americans of any state in the country. Sure. How do yeah. they fare as a political force in that state? Yeah. You know, unfortunately, um, uh, so in many of the areas that have a you know, large population of Alaska Natives, it's really remote. So, you know, people mm-hmm. are living in villages that have, uh, you know, difficulty to access. They have pretty low, um, you know, access to health care, maybe not adequate education and things like that. And voter registration is really low, and voter turnout is very low among Alaska Natives. And it's similar, similar, and I would say comparable to American. I don't know what the politically correct term is. Uh, you know, term is like American Indians is what it used to be, but like Alaska Natives have a similar fate. Although they're not on reservations, mm-hmm. they are in remote areas, and yeah, you know, they don't vote. They're not mobilized, and there's not an incentive for the parties. I mean, there's not like. There's not really voter mobilization efforts in Alaska either. So you guys are in Georgia, or at least, uh, you know, David's in Georgia. Um, you're in Georgia as well. So, you know, I mean, you've got voter registration drives happening like crazy to try to get out to these, uh, you know, kind of like different communities that haven't always been part of, you know, the, the political establishment. That it, yeah. People aren't doing that in Alaska. They're not driving around you know, thousands of miles to reach a town of, of 50 people. Because what would mm-hmm. it accomplish? There's no presidential electoral college votes in Alaska. There's three votes, and they always go to the Republican Party. So mobilizing new people in Alaska doesn't do anything for anybody outside those population centers. And so, you know, the um, any sort of political influence that will uh, be possible for groups that, you know, even though it's a sizable kind of minority population – 
um, that has, you know, very low voter turnout, it's going to have to be kind of non-government organizations. And off the top mm-hmm. of my head, I can't think of who the most uh, influential are in Alaska, but I know that there has been um, efforts to try to get that kind of same um, contracting. So try to get the, you know, native-owned businesses to participate in, you know, government contracts and require that they're allowed to bid or that they get an opportunity to bid. So some of that economic power, I think, has been uh, tapped into or they've attempted to get some economic influence. But in terms of politics, yes, it's it's the undermobilized population. It's really similar to um, American Indians in the lower 48. So I don't know if they'll they'll be mobilized. Yeah. I thank you for that, and I'm sending it back to David. David? Yes, well, Dr. Wayne, thank you for coming on the Kudzu Vine tonight. And I kind of wanted to leave with this question. If someone's heard you tonight and they want to read more of your writings or see your musings on social media, are you on any kind of social media, or is there anywhere people can read your writings? Sure. Uh, I'm not on social media, and that's because I I am smart. I don't know. I'm careful about um, you know, the, the political climate in which, you know, people that are professors get out there and they say their opinions on social media and they get themselves in trouble. Man, I tell you what, um, I actually got off social media during the 2016 election. And I, before that, I wasn't a huge uh, Facebook user, but I, but I had Facebook and I had Twitter. And, you know, I would read other people's stuff and I would sometimes post things, but I just got really away from that. But I, I do um, I do have uh, scholarly work that people can read if they're interested. And those things, um, I'm, I'm not sure the best place to find them are in scholarly journals that you might have access to through like a university library or something. Um, but I, I publish things in Labor Studies Journal and the Journal of Labor and Society. And I've done a little bit of research um, that might be linked to on my UIS faculty page, actually, on, on things like police unions and teachers unions. And I've also done um, some recent research on prison education, so prison-based uh, college education. And those are my most recent uh, scholarly articles. And so if you can find that stuff on a, a library or if you want to check out my website, you should be able to link to those. And I'm currently working on a couple of projects. One is actually on the responses of black mayors and in particular women mayors to the 2020 uh, like protests and um, activism for social justice um, in the wake of the George Floyd killing and um, Breonna Taylor. And so I've been working on a project that relates to just how, how mayors talk about these kinds of incidents. And, you know, the, and in particular black women mayors were really huge leaders during 2020 to come out and talk about racial justice when, you know, these things were happening in their cities. So I'm evaluating some of their, their statements. And then I'm also looking at the state uh, criminal justice and public safety reforms that are coming. They're coming right now. So Illinois just passed their big package, but this term I'll be following along to see what other states are doing because it's hard. And one thing that, you know, if people are interested should see what's going on in uh, Minnesota right now and in Minneapolis because they're really trying to get some criminal justice and police reform, and it's hard. They're having a really hard time, you know, being able to appease everybody. And so that's all happening, you know, at the same time that Derek Shaven is actually, you know, going going to be on trial. So I'll be in tune to that, and I hope people can not find me on social media because I'm not on there, but maybe see some of my work published somewhere. <laughs> Well, it sounds like we may have a Kudzu Vine exclusive. If you want to hear Dr. Magic Wade, you've got to listen to this appearance on the Kudzu That's Vine. True. And we have an election coming up in Atlanta with uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms, who's going to be running yeah. for a reelection. And she was one of the people I bet you're going to study. So maybe closer to the election, yeah, yeah. we'll get you to come back on and give your thoughts oh. on um, how she responded I, to everything yeah. in 2020. Oh. I would love to talk about that. She note well, noteworthy thing is she gave so many interviews. I mean, of, of all the mayors, I'm pretty sure. And I think it's people thought she might be Biden's running mate, but she was on every single talk show, like every night. And compared to um, some of, some of the other mayors, she really was hyped. She raised her profile a lot during that. So yeah, I'll yes. be following her closely. <laughs> we may have to check back on that in the future, but we want to thank you for coming on the Kudzu Vine tonight. 
Sure. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Dr. Magic Wade, and we're going to um, – I'm going to close it out with this because there's no way we're getting to any other topics. Um, that would be um, when I mentioned Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. I'm going to kind of – Catherine, I've got a two-parter for you and then the same two-parter for Tim. Um, what are his chances of re-election winning renomination as a Republican? And even though they're not good, what his chances be better in trying to switch parties? I just don't think he can switch parties. <clears throat> He's too conservative. I mean, he was yeah. good on the, on a few things around this election, but in general, he's not good on on like what Democrats think of in in terms of voting. Um, yeah. I think his I think he his chances of winning a primary are very slim, and if he did through and make it, I think the Democrat could beat him. Yeah. Uh, okay, uh, Tim. Same question. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I, I think he's toast, David. I really do. I, I don't think he's going to win a primary if he runs, and certainly switching parties is is not going to help him at all. I, I think he's. I think he's uh, between the rock and hard place either way he goes. Yeah, I think y'all are right. And the one thing that is sad is that he's going to be punished in his own party for doing the right thing. And hopefully the lesson that people take from this is, oh, look what doing the right thing will ha- you know, happen to you. Um, that would be kind of a sad state of affairs. But I don't think um, he, will be, he would, could win a Democratic primary either. I remember some of his primary um, commercials. I remember, I guess I was then down in South Georgia near the beach, and I remember one of those um, election ads he ran in the primary, and it wasn't anything close to a Democrat. I was like, man, I could pick two or three other Republicans. I'd feel safer than. Um, but really, David, it's just a real weird quick, deal for him. Real, real, sure. real quick, David, they all voted for Trump. This is what they get. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we'll see. Well, next week we'll have uh, more topics. I have a feeling two of our topics we didn't get to discuss uh, last night we'll keep until then, or tonight we'll keep until then. And our guest will be um, Kara Turrentine, who's agreed to come on Easter Sunday. So we certainly thank her for uh, coming in on the holiday. But until next week, been the Kudzu Vine. Good night, guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution with a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world. America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice.